In his now very popular book entitled The Reason for God, Tim Keller says the following. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. And if he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. And that, as you can imagine, is our subject today, the resurrection of Jesus. And what I want you to observe with me today, what I want you to note with me today is this reality. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is essential for authentic, saving faith. You must believe Jesus rose. You must believe Jesus rose. It's critical that we understand that. Now remember, it's important again for us to have a framework as we approach this discussion. Remember as Luke is writing this letter, this record of the Acts of the Apostles, this is the second longest book in our New Testament. Second only to the Gospel of Luke, this second uh, record put together with that first one makes Luke the the largest contributor to our New Testament. Luke is not offering, though, in this second book, a different story. Many times as we look at the book of Acts in our New Testament, we kind of separate it from Luke because the Gospel of John is immediately after Luke. And so in our mindset, Acts and Luke don't go together. But truly, this is just the continuing story. Even as Luke says in that very first verse as he introduces this, to Theophilus, he says, listen, I started to tell you all that Jesus began to do and began to teach. Here's the rest of the story. Here's the rest of what he accomplished. But now he's doing that through his apostles. The theme of the book is very clearly laid out immediately in chapter 1, verse 8. He says to his disciples, Jesus speaking, you will receive power from the Holy Spirit and then you will be witnesses to me to the ends of the earth. That's the focus. And the entire book lays out beautifully in line with that. There are witnesses in Jerusalem, chapter 1 to 7. There are witnesses in Judea and Samaria, chapter 8 to 12. And then there are witnesses to the ends of the earth, chapter 13 to 28. That's the book. That's how it's laid out for us. Now, The theme throughout Acts of the resurrection is significant. We've already talked about this theme numerous times. So much so, though, that this book has actually been called the gospel of the resurrection. Uh, I discovered that this week. I love that title, right? Don't, Don't you love that title? The gospel of the resurrection. The apostles preached the good news of Jesus risen from the dead uh, repeatedly. And I want you to see this. Don't try and write this down. But I want you to observe all of the places throughout the book as they preach the good news of Jesus, they connect it to the resurrection. All the way to the end of the book, chapter 26, beginning in the very first sermon. Or at least the first public sermon. It's throughout the book. In all the speeches of Acts, The resurrection occupies the central place. Jesus is Lord. Why? Because God raised him from the dead. 
Folks, the issue of the resurrection is not just significant on Easter Sunday. This is significant for everything that we think and everything that we believe about Jesus. And as we walk through this today, I want you to see that. I want that to kind of jump out at you. The message of the resurrection becomes then the urgent message and mission of the apostles. And it is still the urgent message and mission for us today. This is still the issue. So again, as we walk through this, I want you to note this with me. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is essential for, listen, authentic, saving faith. Listen to me. If you don't believe Jesus rose, you don't truly believe. You don't truly believe in all that Jesus is. In all that he came to accomplish. You and I must believe that Jesus rose. Now, we're going to look at four things together. Now, the initial one, I think in some ways, sets the stage for the others. So we'll kind of flesh that one out a little bit more. We're we're going to look at more truths in this first one than the rest. So, So don't get worried on the first one, all right? But the first thing that we're going to look at together this morning is this. The resurrection of Jesus proves who Jesus is. And it offers us complete, full assurance in Him. Because of who He is, you can be absolutely certain of your relationship with Him and of all that will come in the future. So, throughout Acts, there's numerous titles, numerous actions that are connected to Jesus because of His resurrection from the dead. We're going to start in Acts chapter 3, And verse 15, now we've already walked through this text, but we didn't necessarily park on this title that Peter kind of gives. And he offers a couple others for Jesus here, but we're just going to focus on the one in verse 15. For context's sake, look with me at verse 14, chapter 3 says, But you, Peter preaching again to this audience after he's healed this lame man in the temple, remember, Peter's preaching and he says, But you denied the holy and righteous one. And asked for a murderer to be granted to you instead. Right? Remember this? Uh, They say, we want Barabbas. We don't want Jesus. So they call for this guy who's essentially an insurrectionist. He's a rebel. He's killed people in the process of trying to raise a rebellion against Rome. And the people say, yeah, we want that guy. We want the murdering seditionist rather than that peaceful guy. Right? Right? who's kind and heals people. Yeah, we want the murderer. Peter reminds them of this, and then he says, and you killed the author of life. You killed, in essence, the creator. But God raised him from the dead. And to this, we, and Peter speaking collectively of the group, him and John there, to this, we are witnesses. So Peter defines Jesus here as the author of life. Now, what is he telling us? He's telling us that through the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus holds the keys of life. This means that all life is his. This means that he owns life. If we want to have eternal life, then Jesus is the one we desperately need. 
Listen carefully. You can't have life without Jesus. Remember, Jesus in his conversation with his disciples in the upper room before he is going to be crucified the next day, what does he say to them? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. Luke here reminds us through Peter's sermon, that's exactly who Jesus is. He's the author of life. He holds the keys of death and of hell. Jesus is in charge of life. But go on, chapter 5 and verse 30. We'll be in this text next week. Chapter 5 and verse 30, the Bible tells us, Peter again preaching now to the Sanhedrin, he says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader, ruler, and savior to give repentance to Israel and for forgiveness of sins. So two titles he gives Jesus here, ruler and savior, leader and savior, and it's because of what? His sacrificial death. And truly, there's a sense in which some struggle to see Jesus as a savior. How could Jesus be a savior when he's dead? Saviors need to be alive to save somebody, right? Well, the truth is in the resurrection, he absolutely is alive. But in his death, Jesus dies for you and for me. He dies in our place. He dies for our sins. And this is why at the end of this passage, he says, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. The purpose of his death is to make forgiveness of sin available to you. Jesus died in your place. And in his death, he takes that sin, and in his resurrection, he conquers it. And he conquers the grave, and he conquers hell. It's all victory because of his resurrection. It describes him also as ruler. Now, in a sense, what it's describing here is Israel's prince who shares God's authority and who, in essence, initiates the restoration of the kingdom of God. He is a pioneer who opens this pathway to eternal life. Jesus accomplishes this through the resurrection. But he's also our savior. He also becomes the savior. And he's the only one truly that can deliver you from your sin. Folks, listen carefully to me today. It's imperative that we understand in a culture in which everybody kind of decides, this is how I think I can get to God, or this is the way to God. The truth is, Jesus is the only way. I can't do anything to save myself from sin. I'm helpless in that regard. We'll, we'll talk about that more in a minute. But that's Jesus' role. His role is deliverer, savior. He's rescuing you from sin. Now, the perception in the Jewish mind in the first century is that the deliverer would rescue them politically. And if we're not careful at times, we can kind of get bogged down with that too, right? We need a political deliverer, right? We need a political rescuer. No, you don't. 
You need to be saved from your sin. You need to be made right with God. Jesus, the Savior, does that. Going on into Acts chapter 13. He's also described as the Son of God. Again, Peter, or excuse me, Paul is preaching here. And he's preaching in verse 32, and he says, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers. Listen, this was already promised throughout the Old Testament. Peter said it. The prophets, they all foretold this was coming. So what's been promised to you, this he, Jesus, has fulfilled to us, their children, by how? What did he do to fulfill this? He raised Jesus from the dead. As it is written in Psalm, and this is Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7 that he's quoting, You are my son, today I have begotten you. This is a description, it asserts that Jesus is indeed the son of God. And what does that mean? What it means is that he is the divine second person of the Trinity. He is the son of God. There isn't anyone like him. Because he is God, he can uniquely, perfectly stand in our place. When he takes on flesh, he can uniquely stand as your substitute and mine for sin. And all of this is accomplished through the resurrection. The next title, Messiah, Lord, Judge. We see this in two passages in chapter 2 and verse 36 and then in chapter 17. But God's action in raising Jesus affirms his identity, first as the Messiah, but also as the world's Lord and judge. And, And here's the truth. The reality is some would say today, the fact that the Bible says that Jesus is Lord of the world, that I don't have to accept that. That's true, you don't. But it doesn't change the fact. Jesus is Lord. And the reality is, Philippians tells us, one day every single knee will bow and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, Paul says. Now the truth is, as a believer, you're just admitting that before judgment day. Every human will acknowledge it at some point. You're just admitting it before you stand in judgment before God. Chapter 2, verse 36, Peter concludes this first public address with these words. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. He is absolutely Lord of all. In chapter 17, verse 30, Paul is summarizing a sermon here. He's kind of concluding it, bringing it to its culmination. And I want you to note this. Note what Paul says in the beginning, verse 30. He says, the time of it, times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Here's this universal call. Listen. There was a time where ignorance really defined the relationship between God and humanity. Because of Jesus, that's no longer true. There's no longer an excuse for you and I to say, I I just don't understand. You can. It's possible. He goes on in verse 31. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world 
in righteousness by a man who is appointed. And who is that man? And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Folks, listen to me. The certainty of judgment comes in the reality of the resurrection. The certainty that he is the Messiah comes because of the resurrection. The certainty that you can be rescued today from your sin comes because of the resurrection. Do you see the significance of the resurrection? Jesus is Lord of all. And it's by means of his resurrection and ascension that this is demonstrated. It's demonstrated that he is Lord of all. And this universal lordship of Jesus is the grounds for the mission to tell people because he rose, he can rescue you. But you must repent and acknowledge your sin before him. As Peter is preaching again in that first public address back in chapter 2 and verse 21, he concludes a section in which he is quoting the Old Testament prophet Joel. And he says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This text is quoted one other time in our New Testament. It's referred to in Romans chapter 10 and verse 13 where it says, For any who will call on the name of the Lord of the Lord will be saved. Today, the truth is, if you don't know Jesus, you can call out in faith to Him and be saved today. And that can happen because of the resurrection and only because of the resurrection. The resurrection is essential for genuine, saving faith. Do you believe today? Peter is asserting that Jesus is Lord. And along with that comes this universal offer of deliverance, salvation from sin. Because he's the Messiah, because he is the Christ, because he is the author of life, because he is the Son of God, because truly he is the Lord of all and eventually the judge of all, you can confidently rest in him with full assurance because of all that he's done. Now, I want to ask you a question this morning before we move on from this first reality of the resurrection. Today, do you know Jesus personally? Is Jesus your Savior today? Have you been rescued from sin? Have you placed your faith in Him alone? It is not too late. You can do that today. But the truth is you must. This is not a suggestion. This is not something that I can kind of affirm in my mind. I know that's a reality. Folks, to some extent, I have to willingly choose this. I have to acknowledge, God, I know you're the way. I know you're the truth. I know you're my only hope of a right relationship with God. I know it. And I choose you. I want to follow you. I want to be rescued by you from my sin. Have you done that? Is that a reality in your life today? It must be for the resurrection to accomplish all of the rest of these things that we're going to look at. And it will if you turn in faith to Jesus. 
The second thing I want us to see this morning in regards to the resurrection is this. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees our forgiveness and our justification. Justification simply is the idea of right standing before God. Now the two texts that we began with in chapter 10 and in chapter 13, again, are texts that remind us of this offer of forgiveness. In chapter 10, again, and I'm going to skip down to verse 42, it says, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness through his name. You can be forgiven through his name. Paul asserts the same. In chapter 13, verse 38, it says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed. That's justification. You're freed from all these expectations of the law that you can't measure up to. You can't do them. It's not possible. At the outset of the law, God knew the law would be broken. So there had to be a way to make people right who were breaking the law, to justify them, to establish right standing. Somebody else had to do that. Jesus does that. And in part, if you observe, again, it's because of the resurrection. Verse 37. Of chapter 13. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. And because he raised him up. Verse 38 you can be freed. Or verse 37 or 8 you can be forgiven. Verse 38 or 39 you can be freed. You're forgiven and you're freed. Why? Because of the resurrection of Christ. Now again it's important for us to note chapter 10. That Jesus is the judge. Humanity is accountable to God. Now. We don't like that. Most of us, we don't like to be accountable to anybody, right? But the truth is we are accountable today to God. We are accountable to the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father, the judge of all, that's Jesus. The prophets testify of this. They also testify that whoever will believe will receive forgiveness. You can be forgiven Today, but only through the powerful work that Jesus has accomplished on the cross and through his resurrection. You can be freed from your sin. Paul reminds us of that, reiterating the sermon that Peter preaches in chapter 10. But he goes on and he adds more to that. You can be freed from everything that you could not be freed from under the law. So here's the truth today. What I want us to consider before we move on to our third observation about the resurrection is this. Do you understand today that you are a sinner? What does it mean to be a sinner? Uh, Simply put, to be a sinner is to break the law of God. To break the law of God. Now for some of us, we say, if I break the law of God, what does that matter? I don't feel like I'm accountable to God. Well, the truth is all of us are accountable to God. God is the creator He's the maker of all. If he is the creator, if he's the author of life, certainly we are accountable to him. 
So the question for us this morning is this, and I want you to consider with me genuinely to contemplate for a moment. Have you ever told a lie? Even one you might define as white, right? And little. You ever told one of those? It's a sin, right? How about this? Have you ever taken something that wasn't yours? We're coming into that glorious season, tax season, right? You ever taken something or kept something that wasn't yours? How about this? Have you ever coveted something that you didn't have? You looked at it, you wished you had it, you wished it was yours, but it wasn't yours. Folks, do you understand every single one of those is a sin? And here's what I want us to understand. The Bible states clearly, James, in writing to the believers who have been scattered abroad, he says, listen, remember this, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all. Folks, listen to me. What that means is one lie makes me a liar. Taking one thing that doesn't belong to me makes me a thief. Coveting one thing that I don't have but wish I did makes me covetous. The truth is today, the reality is that if I have ever sinned one time, the Bible says that makes me a sinner. There we go. Lighten the mood a little bit, right? The truth is, sin separates us from God. One sin. One sin is all it takes to be a law breaker. Now, the truth is, in our mindset, in our way of thinking, we think maybe if I can do some good stuff, it'll outweigh the stuff that I don't do. Right? It'll outweigh those times that I break the law. Folks, listen carefully to me. This isn't a balance like that. The balance looks like this. One sin, and that sin drags the whole balance down to the bottom. And there's nothing that can fix that on this end. Except a substitute. Except a redeemer. Except a deliverer. There's only one that can deliver us from sin. And that's Jesus. And that's what both Peter and Paul refer to in connection with the resurrection. Because of the resurrection, forgiveness of your sins is available. And you may say today, what do I got to do to get that? Believe. Accept that reality. Jesus can and will forgive you today, right now. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he alone is our hope? The call that's given later on in chapter 17, verse 30, there's this call for people everywhere to repent. Repent, acknowledge your sin, and you will be forgiven. That's the call. So today, the question for us is, have you received the forgiveness of sins that is available to you through Jesus? Have you accepted this offer? If you will, you will be set right with God. If you will accept it, you will be right with God. You get this 
established, righteous standing before him. Not on your merits, on his merits. Because he didn't sin. And in his death, he took yours. Have you accepted that? If not, you can, you must today. Are you right before God today? Are you in right standing before God today? The third observation, the resurrection of Jesus empowers us to change. You can be transformed because of the resurrection. Now, what I want you to observe in this first text we've already looked at together in chapter 4 and verse 13, Peter is speaking to, again, the Sanhedrin. And as he's speaking to the Sanhedrin, uh, and uh, kind of relaying, uh, in essence, the message that they're giving, the Sanhedrin say, you know, give us a minute to confer. And they confer together and they say in verse 13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and uh, and common men, they were astonished. They're blown away. And remember, that word astonished, he's already used it. He's used it for the response of the crowds. They see a man who's lame, he can't walk. They know him, he's more than 40 years old. He's probably been in the temple for years begging. They see Peter heal him and they are astonished. In chapter 2, they hear this loud rushing noise and they see the disciples and the tongues of fire and they see the miraculous and hear the miraculous uh, words speaking in their own tongue and they are astonished. This is the Sanhedrin. And the truth is, at the miraculous hand and work of God, that doesn't astonish them. You know what astonishes them? You take, take a couple of uneducated guys and they talk like educated guys. They talk like something's happened. They talk like something's going on. And man, you're going to astonish the the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. Well, that's exactly what happens. They're astonished by this. And they recognize something. They recognize these guys had been with Jesus. Now, two things. Two things I think are interesting. Number one, and we made this connection when we went through chapter four. I think, if you recall, this is a little bit more than 50 days from Jesus' crucifixion. Remember where the illegal trial of Jesus takes place in the courtyard of the high priest. And when Peter denies that third time, Peter may have pitched a fit a little bit, right? Swearing loudly. I swear I don't know this man. And storms off. It may have caught the attention of the group and they turn over. And the Bible tells us here they recognize these guys. Now, maybe that means they recognize them there. Maybe it just means they recognize that these guys had been transformed because of their relationship and connection with Jesus. It reoriented them. It transformed them. Right? Now, jump forward to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, we have the church at Antioch, and Barnabas is there, and he goes to Tarsus, verse 25, to look for Paul. He's going to get Paul. He wants to bring Paul back to teach these believers. And so he found him and he brought him back to Antioch. And for a whole year, for a whole year, Paul met with the church and he taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. 
Now, if you look in the original language, Christians is, uh, begins with the word Christ. Right? It even makes sense in English a little bit, you know. But this is one of the only times in our entire Bible the word Christian is used. It's only used three times. Here is the first occurrence. And the believers in Antioch, they are identified as Christians. Why? Because their lives were transformed and they looked like Jesus. They reminded people of Jesus. Folks, listen. That's the power of the resurrection to transform a life and make it look like Jesus. And the truth is this. Many times for us, we make a lot of excuses why transformation is impossible. You don't understand. You know, I'm Irish. Right? You don't understand my background. You don't understand my parents. You don't understand what I've endured. Folks, listen to me. That's the power of the resurrection. It's actually available to transform you and make you different than what you are, were. This transformation is tangible. You can feel it, see it almost, touch it throughout the book of Acts. Why? Because of the power of the resurrection at work in the lives of God's people. The transformation of believers powerfully testifies to the resurrection of Jesus. One author, we read a book by him together a year or so ago, Randy Alcorn, he says, The power of Christ's resurrection is enough not only to remake us, but also to remake every square inch of the universe. This is the power of the resurrection. And this power to transform in the lives of the apostles, it proves, it validates the significance of the resurrection. But do you realize that today the ongoing transformation in the lives of believers, that powerfully testifies to the truth of the resurrection. Folks, listen to to me. Does your life testify to the power of the resurrection because you are being transformed? You are different. Somebody that knew you three years ago, four years ago, five years ago, they'd say, man, something's up. Something's going on. What is it? Well, it's transformation. God's changing me. This is the power of resurrection on display in the lives of God's people. Is that a reality for you? Believer, do you understand that you are a testament to the validity of the resurrection? Folks, do you understand why it's so critical as believers that you live out these truths, these gospel realities? Because your life is a living testament to the power of the resurrection. What is your life telling others today about the resurrection? What what does your life declare to others about the power of the resurrection? Does it display the reality of transformation? It can, by God's grace, it should. Final observation. The resurrection of Jesus gives us hope. It gives us hope for the future. In chapter 24, Paul is again speaking. This time, he's speaking to a government official. He's speaking to Felix. 
And as he is speaking to Felix, he declares the following in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 24. But this I confess, that according to the way, and this is a description that will come upon in the next couple of chapters, but it's something that the believers described as the way that they ought to live, the way that they ought to follow. He says that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. There is a coming resurrection day. Every human being that has ever lived and every human being that will ever live will rise again, whether they're just or unjust, whether they know the Lord or they didn't know the Lord. Now what Paul is doing is asserting that his hope in God rests in the reality of a coming resurrection. He says, literally, my hope is, the the reality is there's this coming resurrection, and I'm resting in that. I'm rejoicing in that reality. All will be raised. So the truth is today, believer, that even our hope in the future rests in the resurrection. For many of us, that should be a wonderful hope. But it might be a terrifying thought for some of you today if you do not genuinely know Jesus. If Jesus is not genuinely your Savior, your deliverer from sin, a resurrection in which you stand before Him, that could be a horrible thought. It doesn't have to be. Because you can know Him today. You can turn in faith to him today. If you're a believer, your hope is in the reality of the resurrection. If you don't know Jesus today, you can. Turn in faith to him. We've considered together four observations about the resurrection, but all of them together come back to this truth. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is absolutely essential for saving faith. You must believe Jesus rose. You must. Now for some today, the truth is you need to make a decision to follow Jesus. You need to make a decision to call out in faith to him to be rescued from your sin, to be delivered. If you understand today you're a sinner and if you've never called out to him, that is step one. You must turn in faith to Jesus. But if you're a believer today, how is the resurrection shaping, transforming what you do and the way that you live? It should. The resurrection should change everything for us as believers In a Puritan prayer book, there's one of the prayers that's entitled Crucifixion and Resurrection. The author begins with the following statement. The sepulcher, the grave, calls forth my adoring wonder. For it is empty, 
and thou art risen. The fourfold gospel attests to it. The living witnesses prove it. And my heart's experience knows it. Is that the affirmation of your heart today, believer? I know it. I've experienced it. It resonates with me. He concludes the prayer with this request. Grant me more and more of the resurrection life. May it rule me. May I walk in its power and be strengthened through its influence. That should be the cry of every genuine believer. May I live out this reality more and more. May this truth, may it rule me. May I walk in its power. May I be shaped by its influence. Is that the cry of our hearts today? It should be. By God's grace, it can be. The first issue, though, is do you know Jesus? If you don't know him today, you can. Turn in faith to him today. If you're a believer, do you understand the significance, the weight of the resurrection in your daily spiritual walk, in your daily spiritual life? Do you understand it? Is it shaping what you do and how you act? How you think. It should. It can. But we need help for that. We need grace.